Okay, so here we go. We are at the end of Malachi. And so we're going to start in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. And yes, we did include this passage last week. Like it was just kind of at the tail end uh, of our reading, but we're picking up again at 3.16 because to be quite honest, if you remove 3.16 and 3.18 and you just start in chapter 4, verse 1, you totally miss the whole context of it. You totally miss it. Then if you don't read 3.16 through 18 first, then chapter 4, verse 1 through 6 is terrifying to everybody. But whenever you read it in context, and so where we're going to start, you're going to see that this actually should give us so much joy. Like the last part of Malachi should give us joy. And so the the title of this one for me was The Day of the Lord and Our Joy. But I'm not going to lie. I've read Malachi over and over and over and over again just throughout the years. And I never really bridged 3.16 and 3.18 through 3.18 with 4.1. I just kind of went to the day of the Lord. You know why? Because we all have this fascination, especially in our culture these days, but we love apocalyptic things, right? There's something within us that likes the apocalypse, whether it's a meteor, whether it's zombies, whether it's a virus, like there's something about the end of days that fascinates us. And so even as a, a young kid, I remember sitting in church and the way that I read Revelation was because I sat in church I wasn't raised in church, by the way, um, but my parents took us to church. And as I got older, about uh, junior high to high school, then it was more faithful. Um, But I remember, like, he'd be in Matthew, and after a while, with my ADD, I'm like, well, there's Matthew, and he's talking about something. I don't know. What does Revelation say, though? Right? And So we're always drawn to that. But here's what I hope you hear today. There is a day of the Lord coming. And it should give us joy. Like, that's what we're waiting on. If you don't read the rest of chapter 3 and keep it in context, it's terrifying. Because if we just start in chapter 4, here's what you hear. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. Okay. And then it just goes downhill from there. Right? So we're going to read it all in context. Um, My desire is that this is a plain reading of Scripture. So we're going to look at the end of Malachi, and then I do think it's good for us to see other passages that talk about the end of days or the great day of the Lord, however we want to phrase that. Excuse me. So we're going to read all this, and then we're we're going to take a look at the hope that we have because of what Malachi has recorded as a messenger of the Lord. Here we go. Malachi chapter 3 to the end of Malachi. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch." But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. 
And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then God is silent for 400 years. The last word of the Old Testament is destruction or curse in some translations. And you know what we see at the very end of the book? In Revelation, the curse is completely removed and done with. Right? So we're going we're gonna to start moving through here. But, but here's something I want you to get. That all through Malachi, it's, it's been heavy. Like, I mean, it's the priests aren't worshiping right. The people aren't worshiping right. The priests are offering up these, uh, these blemished sacrifices. The priests are not really teaching like they're supposed to. The, the people are falling into disarray. And what we've gone over and over and over again is they no longer honored their God. All of Malachi shows us that they had neglected their God, but he had not neglected them. They had sinned against their God. And it's just heavy. It should be. Sin is heavy. Sin is corrupting. Sin separates us from God. And here's something that you should kind of take some hope in. If you're a believer and you're reading Malachi and you kind of feel that heaviness of sin and you're wrestling with that sin, praise God. Conviction's a good thing, y'all. Repentance is a good thing. I have not arrived at the holiness to which God has called me, nor have you, nor will you ever. But the fact that sin makes us uncomfortable is a good thing. The fact that we read Malachi and we're searching our hearts going, God, is that me? Like, is that what I need to be careful of that? That's the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Praise God that he shows us our sin. But it is heavy. But you do understand that sinners love sin and saints hate sin. We're searching out the sin that's within us because we know it doesn't honor God. That's a good thing. That's why it's heavy. If you weren't a believer, if you did not love God, then you would just read Malachi and be like, well, man, they really kind of messed that up. What's chapter 2, verses 1? Okay, checked off the list. I mean, we would just be rushing through it. But Malachi is heavy for me. As I'm reading it, I'm sitting there going, Lord, am I offering a blemished sacrifice to you? Am I really honoring you in my heart? Am I really, Lord, is this, am I living up to this? So whenever we love the Lord, introspection begins to take place and we begin to search ourselves out because we know that we are the temple of the Lord and that that's what he's called us to. Therefore, Malachi is heavy. Malachi is heavy to the believers, okay? But it's also a warning to those unbelievers because here's a holy God telling them, you have no excuse. And he's laying it out before them. And so hopefully as we've preached Malachi, for those who, who might gather with us who are not yet believers, they're hearing the holiness of the Lord saying, this is unacceptable and this is what I desire of you. Because that's what the law did. The law all throughout here reminded men that they needed a savior. And then God sends his savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, our greatest need is a savior. And he comes. But Malachi is a heavy book, whichever side you're on. 
If you are someone who has not placed your hope in Jesus Christ and in God, then it's a heavy bug because you're understanding, oh my goodness, he actually demands something of holiness within and for him. But if you are a Christian, then there's kind of a heaviness because we're sitting there going, Lord, is that me? Because the priests are being called out. Those who claim to be believers are actually not believers, at least by the expression of their faith in Malachi. It's a heavy book. And then all of a sudden, there's joy. There's joy for the believer at the very end of Malachi. And I think I missed it so many times. Because it's such a heavy book, we forget the transition. The transition at the end gives us hope and joy because he says, oh, I am coming. And whenever I come, I will settle everything. And it's going to be refreshing for you. And it's going to be joyful for you. And you're going to tread upon the wicked like they are ash. I will set everything right. There's hope and peace and joy for us. So, now this is, this is a heavy book. And I think that hopefully what you've heard is that the reason we need Malachi and the reason I need Malachi is because I am not so different than the Israelites and nor are we in our culture. It is easy for us to look back at the Israelites wandering through the desert and go, gosh, they're they're pretty dense. I mean, they just saw him do all these plagues. They just walked through on dry land the parted Red Sea that is standing up in walls. Like they have seen some supernatural pretty powerful things. They see the mountain wrapped in smoke and peals of lightning and thunder. They see all of this, and then they're going to doubt God like the very next day. Like, what's wrong with them? Well, what's wrong with them is that they're just like us. We are prone to wonder, prone to leave the Lord we love. And so here we are. Here's, here's kind of my summary of it all. We today are not so different than they were. The same sins that they committed are the same sins we commit today. The same apathy that it set into them is the same apathy that we contend with today. The same flippancy toward properly worshiping God is still practiced today in many churches. The same low view of marriage and selfish view of finances is still prevalent today. There are still churches filled with self-seeking pastors who are not proclaiming God, but themselves and their comfort. Y'all, we are not so far separated from Malachi. That's just the truth of it. I know I have a critical nature. I know. But I think that that's a pretty fair assessment of where we are. Whenever people say, oh, we've got to be in the final days. You think we're in the final days? Well, of course we are. Like every day, every second's another minute closer to the final moment. We don't know when that is. But really, one of the things that I look at as an indicator is I look back at Malachi, and this is why I read it so much. What happened then that God would begin or would act with such justice? And then I look at Malachi and I see that that's where the church was. That's where God's people were. And he finally says, you've wearied me. And then he grows silent. And I look at where we are today. I'm seeing these these parallels and I'm like, okay, how much long suffering can you be, Lord? At what point have we wearied you to the point to where you will act? That's why Malachi is a good refresher for us. We need the heaviness because the heaviness is the conviction. And from conviction, we repent. And we know that when we repent, that we are returning again to our Jesus who died once and for all, for all our sins. And it's all completely forgiven. But because we've been forgiven, we want to do the hard work of sanctification. So Malachi has been heavy. But I'm really excited about the end. 
Because, y'all, there's a day that's coming. I'm trying to say it with a smile on my face. When he's going to burn up all wickedness in his wrath. You cannot preach that with a smile on your face. Like, that's terrifying. It really is terrifying. But let's move through it and see why this is our hope and our joy in it all. Okay, so let's just, let's start pressing into it really quick. Um, Malachi 3, 16 through 18. I'm going to kind of just start reading and then I'm going to insert some, some commentary as we go. But this is peaceful for us. After all of the heaviness of Malachi, here's where we land. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. About what? About everything that they had just heard. They just heard all these things through Malachi, who we've discussed might or might not really be a true Malachi person with that name, but might be uh, just a, a title given to this person. But I just say Malachi, but they've listened to Malachi share what God has to say to the people. And then those who feared the Lord, they started talking to one another about the sins and transgressions, about dishonoring the Lord. They're talking, right? They're not okay with this. Look what it says. The Lord paid attention and heard them. Is that not amazing? Such a sinful, dishonoring people. And then this remnant leans close to one another and they begin to talk about all this. And it says that God paid attention and he heard them. The God, y'all, who is in the heavens, he pays attention to his people. He cares about how we worship this morning. He cares about what I'm preaching to you and what I'm saying this morning. I will have to give an account for every word that I speak from the pulpit. But you know what the Gospels tell us? You will have to give an account for every idle word that you speak. That God hears his people, right? And he hears us in a good way. Y'all, it is so clear all throughout Scripture. He is not cold. He is not distant. He does not care. He pays attention and he cares. That is comforting for you and me because as we just prayed for one another, the God of all creation was not distracted and he leaned and he heard your prayers for one another. In the quiet of the night, he hears your prayers. In a sinful and wicked generation that Malachi or the, the culture that, or that was surrounding Malachi had become, he heard the prayers of those who feared the Lord. When you pray, he hears you. So I love this. He, he paid attention. He heard them. And then look at this. In a book of remembrance. And we see this idea of this book of remembrance or book of life. It's all throughout scripture. But it was written before him, before God, of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. God took note of them. Y'all hear the genuine believers of Malachi's day. They weren't all wicked. They weren't all to be cast aside. They were not all dishonoring the Lord. They heard their sin. They repented of their sin. The Lord heard them and took account of them, and he wrote their name in the book of life, never to be blotted out ever again. Like, that's awesome. I love this, okay? But we're still setting the context of what's going on. But you need to know this. They are preserved and forgiven, and they are known for all eternity, though they lived in the midst of this wickedness, because God is faithful to those who love him and fear his name. You and I don't need a perfect world or for everything to reach perfection. That is one of the end-time ideologies is that everything must reach a certain point of perfection before the Lord will return. I'm not going to speak against that or for that. I'm just going to simply say 
It doesn't matter the context we're in. The Lord is faithful to his people. Okay? All right, so I want to keep going. Listen to what he says. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. Can you imagine... I'm, can you imagine how comforting and relieving and sweet that must have been to hear all the heavy condemnation where God is saying, I've been dishonored, I've been dishonored, I've been dishonored. And then he hears the prayers of those who love him. And his proclamation is, they shall be mine. Like that, that stops me. Like, that's what he says of you and me, believers. Like, you and I, the Lord says of us and of them, they shall be mine. We see it all throughout Scripture. They shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will never leave nor forsake you. You are mine. You are my treasure possession, but they shall be mine. Powerful words. And if you were someone who feared the Lord then after all this heavy condemnation, imagine what that would have done for your heavy and broken heart for the Lord to say, but you're mine. You are my treasured possession, and I will spare you. If that doesn't move us, you know, I think that, I'm not saying that we're guilty of anything. I'm saying if that doesn't move us, I want to personally get back to that point where it amazes me of what God has done for me to make me his own. I had no right to be his son. I have no right to be forgiven, no right to receive his mercy and grace. And yet he says, because you fear me, because you love me, because I first loved you, you will be mine. And nobody can undo that. So we're getting that context here. God will not condemn them with the rest of the Israelites is what you need to know. He goes on, he says, I will spare them. Those who fear the Lord, as a man spares his son who serves him. And watch this, then once more, he's writing to them. He says, once more, you righteous, once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God, the one who does not serve him. You know, I think that this is really important because this is where I think we miss it in our churches. This is where we miss it in our Christian books. It's where we miss it in our Christian movies. The Lord just spoke to those who believe in him, who fear his name. And he says, once more, you will see the distinction. You believers are going to see that I'm going to handle things. And you're going to see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And then he's about to say, I'm about to bring a day of wrath. I think that in our churches and in our church and our Christian culture, it is a terrifying, don't, don't get me wrong. This, this just sounds like a really horrible thing that's about to happen. But he says, don't worry, righteous people. I will spare you, and you're going to see that there's a difference between you and the wicked in that day. We don't have to fear the final days, y'all. We don't have to. And I'm going to touch on that as we move through it. But I'm just going to tell you, I think that because we've been told that he will execute justice on a grand scale and that we will somehow be spared from that. And I'm not going to tell you what that means because you know what? We don't know. All right? 
but somehow we'll be spared from that and that we will have like this joy that's refreshing and healing to us as we see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. I don't think this was ever meant to terrify the believers or to shake them. It was meant to give them hope and peace. That in the end, God is sovereignly going to lay everything straight again. Excuse me. So this is for our hope and joy. Everything before this verse, before these verses, has been heavy with that conviction of watch out for these sins, profess or confess these sins, and repent, or understand that a holy God is deeply dissatisfied. Everything now is shifting to the positive for the believers, and this is his final word, even though sometimes if we read it and we read it wrongly, it seems really negative because it ends with destruction and a curse. And he's saying, oh, no, 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 no. I'm about to act because if I didn't act, everything would be utterly destroyed. But I'm about to do something wonderful. Like that's kind of the context and the thrust of these verses. All right, so we should read the next parts with joy and hope, not because we are uncaring of the lost, not because we are uncaring of the wicked, not because they will be destroyed or wickedness and sin will be destroyed, but because our God in all of his holiness is doing what's right. Because we care about his glory, we care about his holiness, and y'all, we care about the reward that is due to us. We are told all throughout Scripture that we are rewarded with holiness and righteousness, that we will receive crowns, that we will reign alongside Him. Like, it's not bad to be, like, excited about those things. That's not selfish. That's joyful. Like, this world is falling apart. This world is broken by the curse of sin. Whenever we believe in Christ... We are no longer living for this world. We are living for heaven. And the glories there and the rewards there are amazing. And it's good to be excited about those. I don't even know what it's going to look like. And I get really excited. I mean, it was hard to wake up this morning. I mean, and I'm sitting there going, man, like, but I'm refreshed. Like, I'm ready for another day. Granted, I moved very slowly. I sent one kid to turn off the alarm, and the other one I sent to start the coffee. I'm not going to lie. Right? It took me longer, but I woke up refreshed. Can you imagine what it will be like in eternity whenever you and I do not grow weak or weary or tired? When there is no death, nor sickness, nor weariness, no anxiety, no brokenness, no sin? Like, can you imagine that? That's good. Whenever we know that we're going to see God face to face and he will wipe every tear from our eye, and once he wipes that tear, there is no weeping anymore. Like, do you know what that, that's good to hope in that. All right, so it's good to hope in those things. We should, this should embolden us, this should give us peace. All right, so what's going to give us peace? Because he just said, we're going to see the distinction between the, the holy and the unholy, the, the righteous and the wicked. And then he goes in, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. All right, for behold, the day is burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. And we're going to talk about that. So as we talk about chapter four, I want to do two things. Number one, what does this passage mean for believers? And number two, what other passages are there in the New Testament that will help us understand what this day will look like? And as I do this, I want to do it very intentionally with a very plain reading of Scripture. What I mean is I want to just explain what the verses mean. I, intend, I did read commentaries. I did study. 
but I'm leaving out persuasions towards, well, goodness, is he going to tell us, is he pre, post, amillennial? Which one is he, right? Is he going to tell, is he a, is, he, is a rapture going to come in here? Is he a pre-tribber, mid-tribber, post-tribber? Right? Where, where is he? What are we going to get? You have to buy me coffee for that kind of stuff, okay, y'all? Right. I will say, I have my preferential scriptural convictions that I seem to hold to very strongly right now, right? They make sense with how I've stated it. We'll talk about that over coffee. And then as we're talking, you'll be like, yeah, but what about? And I'll be like, I know, right? I have no idea, okay? <laughs> there is a great mystery in the end times and the timeline of it all, and that's okay with me, right? I think I've got it all figured out. Ten years from now, I will probably look back at some of these convictions that I've held about the end times and go, oh, probably should not have recorded that podcast and put that one out on the Internet. I've just walked alongside many believers, and you've done the exact same thing, where we think we understand it, and then years later, um, go back and we revisit Scripture, and we understand that, that we missed something. We understood another verse, another scripture in a different way. And so you're not going to get my timeline. You're not going to get how I feel about these things because to be quite honest, truth is, I don't know. Jesus didn't even know when he would return. And he is part of the Trinity. There are things that Jesus didn't know that we have authors and pastors telling us what even Jesus didn't know. And I am not confident in my understanding of Scripture enough for me to confidently say some of these things. But I'm just, I'm just simple. A plain reading of Scripture is sufficient for me. If God moved men to only write these things, that's enough for me. So here's going to be the, what we're going to do as we move through is I'm going to break down Malachi 4 through 6, just like we have been. But whenever we get to these other passages, I'm just going to kind of give you the bullet points of, did you notice what it said there? Wars and rumors of wars. Earthquakes and famine. Like, I'm just going to make sure you hit the high points, and then I trust the Lord to work out within you and for you what he wants you to know and for you to have peace. I have several who have said, not even within this church, when are you going to preach Revelation? Like, could you preach Revelation soon? Um, just, we want to know what you think about Revelation. I don't know what I think about Revelation, if I'm getting really honest. Like, I'm listening to one pastor interpret things. I'm like, that's really, that makes sense. And then I listen to another pastor, and he interprets another verse differently. I'm like, that makes sense. That's, y'all, I'm 39. God's eternal. Oh, well, I'm going to be 39, okay? I'm 38. I'm going to be 39. <clears throat> it's close enough. And, and God's eternal. There's no way I can match his wisdom. There's no way I can know the things that are secret to God. So... A plain reading of Scripture is the approach we will take. If you want my timeline, then you'll be underwhelmed, but it'll be a good cup of coffee for me. Okay, this passage, 4-1. We're just going to break it down as we did 316 through 18, make sure we understand plainly what it says and disregarding all of the um, presumptions that we can make. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. You know, so this is what's called the, the great day of the Lord is what some Bibles have in it. But if you read scripture, the day of the Lord, that phrase appears all throughout scripture. 
it begins in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord is simply whenever God steps into his creation and acts in a very decisive way, whether for his people or against a nation. So the day of the Lord is a common term and would have been a term to them of God's coming judgment. That's what it meant, judgment for, judgment against. But the great day of the Lord is a different day entirely. And so this is like a big day. Um, it's what we would tend to call like the end of days or the final day. Um, but that's what this is referring to here. And we know this from Scripture. You're going to see this. There will be a great burning. Like whenever he says it will be burning like an oven, yes, well, God's wrath will be burning against him. Is it symbolic? Maybe, except we have other Scripture that says that the skies will be dissolved and everything will burn. Okay, so we know that there will be a burning in the end <clears throat> and that there will be a spiritual judgment at that point. So we see that, right? All of the arrogant, notice the word all, all of the evildoers will be stubble. In this final day, there will not be a remnant of evil that's left. All evildoers, and then I thought it was very interesting, all arrogant. Another word for arrogant, all the proud. In other words, all those who are puffed up in themselves, who will not honor God as God, who will not fear him, that all fits the context of what's going on in Malachi. All of that, all of them will be left to stubble. Who should fear the great day of the Lord? The evildoers and the arrogant, not the believers. Y'all get that, right? The arrogant and the unbelievers, they should fear the great day of the Lord, not believers. And that's what he says. We will see a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. We're going to be witnesses to these things. Okay, he says the day is coming. Sorry, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze. We have that, that reference again. Says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Again, y'all, this is about unbelievers. It's for the unrepentant sinners. God will execute justice. The justice that bothers or the... The, the lack of justice that maybe we perceive in our world that bothers us in our culture, God will execute justice. Remember, if we tie this all the way back to Malachi 3, they said, where is the God of justice? And he's replying right here. He replies to them um, in the negative saying, I'm coming and I'm going to act in this way. And now he's doing it in the positive to believers saying, I'm coming and I'm going to take care of all of that over there, right? I will execute justice. And he says, but for you who fear my name. Okay, so this is where we got to stop. We got to stop. For you who fear my name. This is the remnant that he recognized right up there. But I think for us, do you fear the Lord? Do you revere him and stand in awe of him? Is he the holy Lord of your life? I can't answer that. I want him to be. I desperately, desperately want him to be. If I didn't care about that, then I wouldn't do this. And if I didn't care that, that the saints knew the peace and joy we have, then I wouldn't do this. But do you fear the Lord? Let me ask this. Do you love him? Fear him and love him. It's a weird mix. But I held Kinley over here while we were singing songs. And she loves me, but she also fears me. There's a unique dynamic in that relationship. It's the same relationship we have in the Lord. We are deeply loved by him and we love him as Christians, but we also fear him because we understand this is the God who speaks stars into existence, stars that we cannot even imagine. This is the God 
who will execute justice. Do you fear him? Do you love him? In other words, are you a believer? Because if so, then the rest of it, like this is for you. Watch this. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. Like there's a coming day of judgment and all the wickedness is going to be burned. But the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. While the wicked are facing destruction, you will be renewed. If this day happens while we are still, on, still here on this earth, and I'm not convinced it will while I'm still here on this earth, maybe while my kids or maybe while my great, 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 great grandkids. I don't know. I mean, he said, I'm coming in Malachi, and then it took 400 years before the Savior stepped onto the scene. We don't know the timing of the Lord. But for those who fear the Lord while the wicked are perishing, there will be healing for them. So you, if this day visits while we're here, you will be renewed. You will find healing. While right now it seems like the good and evil live alongside one another, and it does seem like evil seems to triumph in some cases, we're actually going to see all evil completely obliterated. And while that's obliterated and while everything is falling apart for them and it's being burned up, then we're going to feel this healing within us. Seems to me that, that there's going to be a distinction because a plain reading see, says that you will once again see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. That's what you and I long for. That's what frustrates us. We want to see the distinction fully right now. And it's not an external distinction. It's something that is within us. We know we're different. The world knows we're different. They hate us because of our difference. But because of their hatred towards us, which is rooted in their hatred towards God, then he will act in swift judgment and we will be renewed. I don't know what that looks like. But it keeps going on. Now, let me put this note there, too. I just put cross life. There will be wrath. Like, there's going to be a burning wrath. There will be wrath. Churches today, because I think this is important, churches today really do not like to preach on the wrath of God. In fact, there is a song that, that uh, and the name is escaping me right now, that we sing, and it says, the wrath of God was satisfied. And someone who was leading worship for us, they were just stepping in to kind of help us on a Sunday. They said, do, we, uh, do you sing that verse? I'm like, absolutely we sing that verse. Why, why? I don't even know like, why you're asking that question. And I found out some churches love the song, but they will not sing that verse because it talks about the wrath of God. To which I replied, you're kidding me. Okay? There are many churches that will not preach the wrath of God. And because they will not preach the wrath of God, many are going to face the wrath of God. People need to know that from which they're being saved. And so we preach the wrath of God not with joy, but with the desire that no one faces the wrath of God. The wrath that was due to us was poured out completely on Christ. So while God is pouring out his wrath on a sinful, unrepentant, unfearing world, here's what scripture says. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Like that's the context of the verse. You and I are going to be like calves. Y'all, there are images in Scripture that I never would use in my everyday language. I read the love letter of Song of Solomon of how one husband desires and sees total beauty in his wife and her teeth are like fresh shorn sheep. I don't think if I put that in a card, my wife would really appreciate that I love her smile. 
But there's language. And so, like, we don't talk about, oh, you and I are going to be like calves. And so thank you to the, several of you. Like, I was getting all these clips of calves and cows. They've been bound up. They've been confined. And then the gate opens, and they are released from their stalls. Y'all, they're excited. Like, I get excited on the final day of school. Usually that leads to a collapse, like a physical collapse. But, like, these calves have been bound up for winter and that door opens and they see grass and fields and they, it's just, it really, like I'm sitting there watching and like I'm smiling and laughing because of that. Like, I'm like, it's a cow and it's so excited. Like they're just running, like, and they don't stop. And they're, they're, there's just this joy. You and I don't understand the joy that we will have. That's what I was alluding to earlier whenever I said that it's good to dream and think about these rewards. There's a book I've referenced before by Randy Alcorn. It's, it's about heaven. But he tells you in there, I'm using scripture, but I'm also using my imagination a whole lot because I really want to think on these things. And it's a refreshing book. It really is. I really encourage you to read heaven. Okay, but he says, we will go out leaping like calves from the stall. Y'all, we cannot imagine the joy that we're going to have. You and I don't realize it, but right now we're kind of bound up. We are. Even though we're living freely and we're surrounded by, by, by one another, we are going to be declared righteous and we're going to be ushered into heaven. And like in all of that, like, they're, like we're going to have a joy that we cannot even begin to imagine. We're going to be like calves leaping from the stalls. That's that language that I don't think, you know, if you text me this, how's your day? Like a calf leaping from the stall. It's not what I'm going to say. But you've got to understand the imagery. It actually is rejuvenating, and it actually is joyful to watch these cows see green pastures and open fields, and they just run and run and run. And they, I say buck, I don't know if that, but they leap. Right? They're, ju- they're just enjoying all this freedom of the beauty that's been put before them, and they're free to run. And it says that in the final day, because he's running to the remnant, in the final day, whenever all the wicked are laid to stubble, you and I will be, we will have healing, um, and we will be rejoicing while all of this is going on at the final days. I'm confident in this mystery that it seems like for everything that we do not know, that while it seems like all of this is falling apart over here to the world, that there's going to be settled within the Christian a firm conviction that we don't understand right now, that there's going to be a a firm conviction that the Lord is doing what he said he would do. I don't think that we're going to be living fearfully in those final days, though it seems like something that should be feared. Like there's going to be within us that spirit that's here right now, and it's going to give us that conviction that everything's okay. Like everything is fine. And we're going to see that because that, I don't understand what that's going to look like. For me, whenever I imagine like this great burning, and I can imagine what I think that that's probably most likely going to be, but that's within the culture and the time in which we live right now. But, but if that is, I feel like I'm going to be sitting there going, oh, my goodness, like I've got to start making sure this and this and this and this. I think my understanding of Scripture is that there's going to be a peace within us that we see like in the old saints and the, the prophets, like we see in Daniel and, and them in the front. Like there's just a piece of, but our God will save us from this. And if not, then his glory will be known. Like we're not going to fear it whenever it's actually occurring. 
I can't write a book on that. It just seems to be a right understanding of Scripture. There will be a conviction within us that makes us confident in that day, even though right now we don't feel it. Not because you and I will somehow have reached some elevated standard of Christianity, but because God is faithful and it says that He will be with us always. And we will suddenly know in that moment that there's a distinction between the righteous and the wicked and that we are the righteous and He is with us. Like we're just going to know it. I, I do feel strongly about that. Now, God is going to act in such a way that we will, says, tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes. See that language again? Under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi's assurance is this, that the righteous will reign. We will stand. Right now, it seems like everything's broken and everything's upside down. It's not uncommon for us to say to, you know, that this... This doesn't seem right. Like, why does wicked seem to prosper? And so God was telling the people in Malachi, those who feared his name, he said, they will not always prosper. I will act. And whenever I do, you will know what I'm doing. And you're going to be fine. You will be renewed and healed in this. And so then he gives us a few more verses. But I want to look at some of these. Now, we're going to do this fairly quickly because I've been told that those benches are not that comfortable. Right? So we're going to do it kind of quickly here. And I want to look at some other passages. I'm going to have you go ahead and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. 2 Peter. So Malachi says this day is coming, a day of burning, whenever all wrath will be poured out on all wickedness. And this is the final image that we get, by the way, um, in the Old Testament. But then, it's, um, but then we see this throughout the New Testament. Okay, so I want you to go ahead and get to 2 Peter, and then I want to give you four things that I want you to be incredibly mindful of as saints of our Lord, right? As believers in Him, I feel like as we gather and we look at this topic, which is so incredibly intriguing to so many people, I've got four things that pastorally I want to share with you. Number one, there are many books and many movies out there about the end times. They are for entertainment, not for your theology. Okay, do not take your theology from a novel like understand, but you're going to have to know these things so that you can rightfully discern them. Don't get me wrong. They're fun. They're they're enjoyable. I like reading things like this. They're for entertainment. They are not scripture. So let scripture be true and every other book false. So number two, there are many who claim to have some sort of special insight into the final days. They have found a special code. They have found a hidden phrase. They have thought through these things um, and discerned that this is a hidden passage within there. Um, none of it's accurate, okay? Like, that's just scripturally what we got to come down to. Are there things in scripture that are hidden from us that we, by deep study, understand deeper and deeper? Yes, but I don't think that God hid things from us um, and only gave special understanding to certain individuals, except that there, in the gifts of the Spirit, there are those who have wisdom, those who, are, who have hospitality, those who have greater faith. Like, we see that gifting. And so there are those who understand Scripture and can link Scripture better. But I go back to the secret code and the secret passages. Jesus himself said that even he didn't know, that only God 
the Father knew. So whenever God the Father says go, then that's when it will happen. I don't think that there are theologians today who are wiser than the infinite Son of God and who can somehow figure out now what he didn't even know then. So I don't think that there's any special insight. I think God gave us all that we needed, and that's enough. Okay? So trust Scripture and its sufficiency, even with its mysteries, and doubt man. I'm going to tell you, it's, there's some pretty bold... I mean, you can read one of these books on the, the Bible code, and you're like, oh, well, that's fascinating. Like, that's very, very convincing. Absolutely, it is. Like, and there are... Not, I do think numbers mean something in Scripture. I just don't think that they unlock the final day like many believe that they do. Number three, there are many well-studied scholars, theologians, and pastors who have studied the prophecies and are seeing the prophecies fulfilled, and they can see how other scripture may be fulfilled. You do need to read those guys. In other words, I'm not casting them all out. I'm saying that there are some who are really well-studied, who are theologically accurate. They have studied prophecy, and they are seeing it play out. We need to read these guys. Well, Ricky, who do we read? Give me some time, okay? Because I don't want to refer you to anybody that I haven't first tested, and I also don't want to hang my hat on anything the man says. It just makes sense. But, but they're well-studied. It makes sense. We want to read these guys. So I would just say two things. Check the author. Is he solid? And number two, does it make sense with all of Scripture? If it doesn't check one of those two, then don't read the person, even if it's fun. Like, if they say we're seeing these prophecies fulfilled, but I would, whatever the truth is, it will jive with all of Scripture, not just some of Scripture. And then fourth, this is the big one for me. Don't keep looking for the end of days and miss the present ministry to which God has called you. That's what we're doing wrong in our church culture. We're looking at the end of days. We're worried about the end of days. And all around us, the lost go back and forth. And all around us, people are not glorifying God. So don't be so consumed with the end of days that we miss the present ministry to which God has called us. God, for example, spoke about the first advent, like that's the coming. Spoke about the first advent, and then it was 400 years before Jesus came. God also mentioned this day of the Lord, and it has not occurred yet, and we don't know when it's going to. We keep waiting on something that we may never see ourselves. This is important. It's with that. We don't need to know the timing. We need to know the Lord. God should be our chief fascination. So let's be fascinated by that and just kind of intrigued by this other one over here. All right, here we go. We're going to do this quickly, right? And all my notes are totally available. You just shoot me a text and say, send me your notes, and then you'll get the summary version. But I want you to see what Scripture says. And then we're going to pull back into Malachi, and we're going to be done. I told you, I know that this one's longer. Sorry, but I feel like this is important for us to know. With so many voices on the, the end of days and the final moments, what does Scripture say? 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. It says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of, the, of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In that passage, I think that we miss, just as a side note, I think we miss verse 11. We start focusing on things being burned, burned up, the new heaven, the new earth. He says, since all of this is going to be dissolved, what kind of people should we be? People of godliness and holiness waiting on that day. Don't miss that. All right. Now, with that said, looking at the, the final days, what does a plain reading of Scripture tell us here? Five things, and I'm going to go quickly. His timing is not our own. It's the first thing. Number two, the day will come like a thief in the night. Number three, it will be by burning. We see that echoed again. Now, I do want to make a note here. Is that volcanic, solar explosion, nuclear war, comets, meteors, some cataclysmic event we have not thought of yet? We don't know. But ever since the beginning, throughout all the ages, each one of those made sense to them. Right? Does that make sense? Okay, so we don't, that's what I'm saying, just as an example. We don't want to read into it what we don't know. But here's what we do know that God judged by water through Noah, he will judge by fire in the end. Okay, that's, that's something that I think is important. It will be by burning. Number four, we are to live in holiness and godliness, not fear. I think that tells us that right there. And number five, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that's a whole new fun dis- discussion, too. Okay, his timing is not our own. The day will come like a thief in the night. It will be by burning. We are to live lives of holiness and godliness, not fear, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now we're going to go to Matthew 24. My chief desire in this is to plainly just take Scripture and just plainly break it out. Here's what it says. We're going to do Matthew 24, 3 through 14 first. Signs of the end of the age. If we're reading Malachi and all this is happening, then that's what everybody was waiting on, by the way. That's why his disciples say, when will the end of the age be? Like, when's it going to happen? Because they're remembering Malachi. Like, all right, so... As he, Jesus, said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Verse 6 of chapter 24. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay, ready for your cliff note version? Okay, there's like 13 here, but I will send you my notes too. I just want to see if this jives with what you see plainly taught by Jesus in Scripture. In the final days, people will... Some will come claiming that they are the returning Jesus and they are liars. It's in that passage. 
2, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nation. 3, we are not to be alarmed. Says it. Don't be alarmed. Okay. 4, there will be famines and earthquakes. 5, this is just the beginning of the final day or days. Like whatever it says day, that could be a period of time. Okay. This is just the beginning of it. Six, Christians will even be persecuted in the final days. Why are Christians being persecuted right now? It jives with Scripture. May we be counted that honor if he so sees it. Verse 7, many will fall away from the faith. It's the great falling away. It says so in Scripture. Many will fall away from the faith in the final days. Eight, false prophets or false pastors or false priests False prophets will arise in the final days and lead people away from God. It will happen. Number nine, lawlessness will increase. And number 10, love will decrease in the world. And they go hand in hand. Number 11, quote, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. There will be healing in your wings. You will leap like a calf let out for spring. Verse 12, the gospel will reach every nation. You'd be surprised how deeply we could interpret and reinterpret and reimagine that verse. We don't know how that will be done, whether by missionaries or by the great glory of the Lord appearing to all of them, whatever way he decides to do it, every nation will know of the gospel is what I want you to know. And then verse 13, then, quote, then the end will come. So a plain reading of verse 24 lays out several things that, yes, are you checking the boxes? Absolutely. They've been making check marks and checking boxes for ages, but it's not all accomplished. When will it be accomplished? We don't know. But we do know that these things, it hopefully gives you some comfort. You're like, oh, okay, the Lord knew that this was all going to happen. It's not out of his control. It's part of it. It precipitates the great coming. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28 so when you see the abomination of desolation, this, by the way, is the Antichrist. That's the phrase for the Antichrist. You don't see, you'll see the word Antichrist in some translations. It um, says the spirit of the Antichrist has gone out in one of the epistles. Um, but it's this, that would have been like a rabbit trail. I'm sorry. Okay. But this is the, the Antichrist um, at the end of the age. So when you see the abomination of desolation, this is the Antichrist, spoken of by the prophet Daniel which you can go back and check those prophecies. Very, very intriguing. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So whenever the Antichrist is standing in the holy place, in the temple or established in a religious context and authority, and the readers then knew exactly what that meant. So whenever you see the Antichrist standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So when the Antichrist emerges, basically, and takes power, then the end is near, and it will become a terrifying time for the world, right? That's whenever things are going to escalate to a, a sudden degree. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. His cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then 
There it is. For then there will be great tribulation. So you hear about the great tribulation referred to? This is where that term comes from. So there will be, at that point, a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, so uh, then no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Y'all, the great tribulation will be so bad that we're not going to sit there and go, do you think we're in like the great tribulation right now? Like, scriptural understanding of the great tribulation is, it's going to be horrific, like, we will know that we're in the great tribulation, and we won't have to ask if we are or not. It says it will be so bad, according to a plain reading of Scripture, that there will ne- there's never been a time like it, nor will there ever be another time like it. It will be that bad. Was going through the coronavirus a sign of the great tribulation? I'm pretty sure that other nations have endured worse than what we've just gone through, right? Just as something... The, what's going on around the world? Is this a sign of the great tribulation? There's wars, there's rumors of wars. Seems like everything's, I think we're going to know when the great tribulation happens. There will, has never been another time like it, nor will there ever be. That's what verse 21 says. Okay, the great tribulation, y'all, will be horrible. And it seems like Christians will be there for at least part of it. Okay, because... If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. Quote, but for the sake of the elect, for the sake of Christians, those days will be cut short. What's your timeline, Ricky? Buy me coffee. I don't really know, okay? But it does seem like in this great tribulation, Christians are there at least for part of it, if not all of it, because the one who endures to the end will be saved. Right, So there's, there's language that complement all of that. Here's what I want you to know, and here's where Malachi comes back in. God is in absolute control of it all. He is judging the wicked, and there is a distinction in those days between the righteous and the wicked. Keep Malachi in your mind. Okay, then it goes on in verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform, watch this, they're going to be able to perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So there will arise false prophets and false pastors and preachers and miracle workers who are going to do things that people are going to say, this has got to be Jesus because look what they're doing. Okay? So they're going to be able to be so convincing they could deceive even the elect. All of us. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus Christ, y'all, will come suddenly and he will come from the sky. It will not be a private coming. It will be a public coming. Whenever Christ returns, the world will know. All right? All right. And then wherever, okay, so let's, Takeaways super quick. There will be an Antichrist. The Great Tribulation will be worse than any other time in human history. False prophets will arise with power. The Lord is in charge of the timing of the Great Tribulation, and Jesus Christ will return suddenly and visibly and publicly. Okay? Can you all give me about 10 more minutes? Or are we? Or do we need to do like part one and part two? Like kind of, okay. I'm going... I, this is the whittled down version, y'all. Okay, Matthew 24, 29 through 31. I just think that you need to know these things, especially as we're watching this around the world and wondering what is going on here. We need to be able to give people the right information. 
24, 29 through 31. Immediately, look at this, after the tribulation of those days, quote, in ESV, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall away from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the end of the heaven and to the other. I chose Matthew 24 because it just keeps walking us through. Right? So there's a great tribulation. And after the tribulation, then we see these other things. What are those? I got three for you. After the great tribulation, there will be no sun or moon and the stars will fall from heaven. Is that symbolic? Is that literal? I don't know. I think it means something cataclysmic has happened. Like there's going to be something that, that shakes the creation more than what we understand right now. Number two, then Jesus Christ will come and he will come, quote, with power and great glory and all of the earth will mourn because they will know that he is God and they are not and then it says then Jesus will gather all of his people from the earth well this doesn't jive with some novels we've seen or some or this theologian over here this theologian I know doesn't jive with how I interpret other scriptures too I'm just like walking you through some some things of like, how does the timing all work out? I chose Matthew 24 for a reason. Like, it just kind of keeps it sequential for us. I don't know how it all fits together. God does. That's enough. Okay? Then Matthew 24, 36 through 39. If you take nothing else, take this one for the world. Like, if somebody's asking you. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. No one knows. Verse 37, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words... Number one, no one knows a day and hour, even Jesus. And number two, life will continue on as normal until it's too late. We have been warned. We have been told. We know what it looks like. But in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. Life was continuing on and on and on and on and on until the judgment came and then it was too late. That's what it says the final day will be like. Okay? Now, please go to 1 Thessalonians while we wrap up this portion and we move out of Malachi. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I know this is a long one. I'm sorry. I just felt convicted. It all has to stay together. Good news is you can all go for a nice walk around your neighborhood later. It's a wonderful day. Okay? I like 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11 because it tells us a lot, and then verse 11 tells us what it should do for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Because everybody's been talking about this for a long time, y'all. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. 
Verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. In other words, you know, watch for the signs. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, that's symbolic, since we belong to the light, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Talks about the day of the Lord in verse 1, and in verse 11, he says, encourage one another. I think that that's what we need to be doing with the day of the Lord. It's not meant to instill fear. It's meant to encourage us. Everything's going to be fine, Christians. You need to know that. Everything is going to be fine. We don't know when, we don't know how, but we do know that our God who has saved us is a God who will keep us, and we have not been destined for wrath. Four quick takeaways. Listen to this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We won't know when it's coming. Number two, it seems like we will understand what is going on as it begins to happen because we are children of the light. Right? He says, we don't need to write anymore. You know what's going to be happening. Number three, God has not destined his people to wrath. And number four, which is where verse 11 comes in, knowledge of the end should not instill fear in the believer. Rather, it should encourage us and give us joy, and we should encourage one another. So that's kind of a takeaway. Whenever he says, the day of the Lord, you want to know about the day of the Lord? You don't need me to tell you anything else. You have what's sufficient. Encourage one another until that day. Okay, so why should all of this encourage us and not cause us to tremble? Because it sounds pretty terrifying, I'm not going to lie. But the great day of the Lord encourages us because the Lord who has redeemed us is coming back for us and to declare to all of creation that he is the only majestic, the only powerful, the only holy God. Where it angers us at the dishonor attributed to God, he will make sure that all honor is due to him and he will demand it and declare it and he will judge accordingly. And for us, Malachi... Turn back to Malachi. Because we've listened to Malachi. We've been going through here. We've wrestled with it. We understand there's a great day of the Lord coming. And we talk amongst ourselves of we need to make sure we're not doing this. We need to make sure we're mindful of these sins. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, and in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. That is where we'll be, y'all. It's going to be okay. You're going to be like a little calf leaping for spring. You will have a renewal that you cannot feel right now. Malachi gives us a couple more verses. After all of this, he says, Now remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes, and that I commanded him at Hor for all Israel. All of the law back here that was commanded to Moses and they lived out, Jesus said it comes down to this. 
He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So whereas they were having to remember all the details and nuances of the law and keep it, because this was commanded at Horeb, Jesus says, you know what it comes down to? Love the Lord your God wholly and fully. Keep that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Keep that. That's the law. That's what it all really comes down to. So that's how we can, we can apply that today. You know, the end is coming and we are to cling closer to God. Keep the law as we've seen it through Jesus and live it out. Love God, love others. The day is coming. And then finally, he says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So before that day comes... And all this happens, and it says, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then God is silent for 400 years. And then the Savior comes. Cross life, just as God promised in Malachi that He will come back again. That's, I'm sorry, just as He promised in Malachi that He would come, He will come again. So here's all of our hope and joy. Not that we were saved and left to just figure it out, but that Jesus Christ came as he said he would, that he saved us as he said he would, that he dwells with us as he said he would, and that he will come again just as he said he would. Because of Jesus Christ, God's coming day of judgment will bring us great joy. We're his people, and he will be with us throughout it all. We will never be without our God, and he will execute justice in those final days. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, there has been a great length of time spent up here. There have been many words. Lord, I pray that you have been honored by that time and with those words, though. And Lord, my prayer is that if not, if I have spoken in error, if I have said what should not be said, Lord, then let the podcast fail and, and take away those thoughts so that what remains is what's true and pure and holy. Lord, there is a coming day, and it's the day whenever you show us your great love for us and for your glory. Lord, all glory is to you. You, Jesus, are the radiance of the glory of God, the firstborn among all creation. Praise to you, Jesus. Thank you for coming. Thank you for enduring the cross. And thank you for making us your own. May we live to your glory, not our own. Lord, revive us again with this truth. You are coming. And you are coming for us. Amen.